This is the Things We Do podcast, a podcast about film, life, television, culture, mental health, and all of that fun, jazzy stuff. Today, I've got my special guest, Stephanie Bendixson, or Hex, as most people know her as. Um, yes, hello. Hi, thanks for having me. No worries. Thank you for joining me. Um, so, I'm going to say this first off. Most people in Australia would know who you are, and some people probably internationally. But give everyone a rundown, I think, a breakdown of who you are and, you know, in like your job and your role and the industry? Oh, sure. Um, Well, uh, I've been working in, I guess, tech and video games for over 10 years and I got my start um, uh, hosting a TV show on our um, Australian government-funded broadcasting network and it was called Good Game. It was a a video game review show and since then I've, I've gone to host a bunch of other shows but now I work mostly freelance creating video game content for Twitch and doing promotional work in the games industry and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> so you've had a bit of a, an eclectic career uh, over like 10 years because I remember watching Good Games back in 2009, 2010, just after high school, and that was kind of the first kind of launch thing for video gaming as well in, in Australia. It felt like that was kind of the big deal to make video gaming more mainstream. Was that how it felt for you? Yeah, I don't know. I think I always saw it as kind of a, a small kind of niche show for a very specific audience. And it could only exist on the ABC because the ABC has a, a charter that they need to fulfill to kind of um, uh, service the, the gaps in entertainment that commercial television obviously doesn't because they're sort of chasing very mass markets and um, places where they can get a lot of advertising. So yeah. um, the other thing too is that it was a it was very much a critique and review show. So there was no advertising on it. There was no kind of product placement or anything because it was all government funded. So it had to be completely impartial. So we had this wonderful opportunity for years to make this um, completely unbiased review show under the um, sort of protection of the ABC that was really unlike anything else that existed. And even though it was probably the the biggest thing that existed in video games at the time it, video games was still um something that wasn't really celebrated in in mainstream media in any way so it, it felt like i don't know it, it it felt like an extension of of ourselves without being something that a lot of people really knew about yeah because you were always fascinated by video games and gaming growing up in an in a time where video games sort of like were was it still around you growing up because I remember for me it was very much shunned upon (laughs) if you liked video games it was a very you know as you say niche group of school kids would like video games or board games or something like that you'd be like considered the nerdy group yeah I think like less so when you're a kid I think when you're a kid that um everyone likes video games and that's fine my parents weren't um keen on having consoles in our house they were kind of worried about them being sort of time wasters for us so um I didn't have them but a lot of my friends certainly did and I played heaps of games over at friends houses and stuff but certainly when you kind of moved from and we noticed this a lot with Spawn Point because we had a kids version of the show as well that we made and the gender split with with kids was was equal um to to, uh, of boys to girls but Mm. with the adult show it was more of a sort of 70 30 maybe closer to 80 20 split wow to women yeah so there's something that happens i think socially at a sort of high school level that pushes girls towards more creative subjects and interests 
as opposed to, um, you know, STEM and, and video games and tech and stuff like that. So by the time I was in high school, yeah, it wasn't a, a, a particularly um, common thing for a lot of girls to be playing video games. I still did because I had a friend that had older brothers and it was something that we were really interested in. But um, it was never something that I thought about pursuing as a career or, or, or yeah. anything like that because my understanding of careers in video games was programming. Yeah, it's, it's like that was my understanding until I met people who actually started working in the industry and a lot of my friends who were studying it at uni and it was just before then I was like why would you like want to work just as a programmer it doesn't sound enticing um (laughs) but a lot of a lot of um, people ended up being like commentators and um you know people who actually ran campaigns so it sort of felt very much like it was a very inclusive thing but I mean like your parents also like I read recently took you to therapy to kind of get you, <laughs> to get you over video gaming, how was like was that just a strange situation to be like uh, maybe it, like my parents think this is an addiction? Yeah, it was a very specific set of circumstances because because I wasn't allowed to play video games in my home, but it was very much something that I was still interested in. Um, and I was a and I was really into like fantasy fiction. Like I used to devour fantasy novels, and I used to do a lot of. Um, fantasy art I would draw the characters that I read about and I was very immersed in those worlds and I think I just wanted to live there as opposed to in real life so for me I I saw there was an opportunity to kind of you know to live in in an extension of of the fantasy worlds that I loved in video games I just couldn't get my hands on them Um, but we we did have a computer and we had um, like my dad had a pc and we had the internet and I remember I I discovered um uh, when I, I don't know what I was searching for, but I very much accidentally stumbled across something called a multi-user dungeon um, or a MUD as it was referred to. Mm-hmm. And these were like huge in the 80s. They were very text-based online role-playing games where it was kind of like, you know, everything was kind of set out in a grid. So you would type north um, and it would be like to your north you see like a path with a cracked pavement and a few oh. trees growing on the side. And if you typed south, it would be like further to the south, the path continues and you can see there's a, an, a, an armory on the left or whatever. And so you would type and then and you would have different syntax to sort of talk and emote and look at other players and exist in this world. So it's kind of like um, kind of collectively being in a book, I suppose. <laughs> and, and, and there were other players in there that all had these beautifully, um, you know, written characters and, you know, you were speaking with them in the moment and I'd never encountered any kind of multi-user anything like that before. And when I realized what it was, I was just so excited at the thought of of this kind of living, breathing fantasy world that I just threw myself headfirst into it. That's amazing. Like, Yeah. <laughs> but of course, I was playing with people that were, you know, primarily in the States. So I was playing a lot at night and, um, uh, you know, I got really, really addicted to it because like any sort of role-playing game like that, you start to create stories that are woven into other people's stories and you become required to be there when they're there so that these stories can continue. And um, I started like um, my parents were kind of getting frustrated that I was spending so much time on the computer because it was all text-based. They didn't didn't sort of tweak to the fact that I was playing a game. 
but um, they were like, you need to sort of, you know, limit the time that you're, you're on the computer. So I would get up after they'd gone to sleep and it was back in dial-up days. So I had to like take a pillow and put it over the modem to try and like mute the sound of the, of the dial-up. And then, um, and I'd play all night. And then, um, you know, I started getting a few girls at school kind of hooked on it and we were playing it at school and the schools contacted my parents. And then once they realized what was going on, they were really worried that I, you know, that not only was I kind of obsessed with this video game, but I'd like roped other girls into it and the school was involved. So yeah, they, they sent me to counseling for what they thought was something that was very serious. And I guess maybe look, it kind of was at the time, but you know, from my perspective, I was a, I was an adolescent girl who was very awkward in real life. And in this world I could, I could be the best version of myself and, and, you know, like with the avatar that I the the sort of text avatar I'd created. Yeah. It's, I I think that's really in it because it's like very much escapism, like, you know, the equivalent of someone reading a book or, you know, like the Harry Potter franchise, everyone bonding over that. It's very much like living and breathing the world. Um, So I, I kind of get what your parents are worried about, but I mean, also at the same time, let your child like run free, <laughs> run free. Yeah, they like, were just afraid of what they didn't understand. Yeah, I, think. I mean, was, was that the case though with school? Like, was school something you found rather difficult that you sort of like used games as a point to then escape from school, or was it just kind of like you found it and it was great escapism from like yourself? I think I just found that the social stuff at school a bit difficult. Like, I moved schools a few times, and um, I think I felt like. Um, I just really wanted to be liked, but I was also kind of, um, going through all kinds of like teenage phases and goth phases and all kinds of stuff. So I think, um, I found it all just really exhausting trying to get people to like me or, you know, trying to fit into whatever social circles I felt like I needed to be in. And this was just an escape from all that where everything made sense. I was like an awesome warrior elf woman and, you know, I was fighting dragons and that seemed simpler to me. (laughs) (laughs) To be honest, that's very Lord of the Rings, like right there, like (laughs) hands down Elder Scrolls, give it to me now. Um, Yeah. I I think that was the case because I remember in high school, like the big thing for me and my escapism was like, um, like, you know, uh, Doctor Who, which was a big thing for me, but it was because it wasn't popular culture. It didn't, no one knew about it. Like it hadn't come back into the mainstream yet. So I was like one of those kids who had like probably about <laughs> three friends who knew what their parents had grown up with. So, yeah. but I had this, you know, like I remember like the parent lamenting how much computer time you had and the dial up. I mean, the, nowadays everyone can stream and you know, do everything online. It's sort of like nuts how far we've come a bit in controlling how much consumption we could do with like streaming and, you know, video gaming and everything. How did, how's that sort of compared to when you were a kid? How do you feel about that now that you're sort of an adult? Um, I, I mean, I, f- I feel like it's great that it's, that it's more socially accepted but I still think we have a long way to go in terms of how video games are perceived alongside other mediums so you know for me I feel like um, there's a bit of a disparity between how people look at video games versus um, conversations around you know binge watching television series on a weekend that's something that's totally acceptable and everyone relates to and everyone's fine with the idea of just watching entire seasons of tv shows Um, to pass the time but if you tell someone you played video games all weekend it's like still like I think kind of frowned upon as something that's like 
um, a big waste of time or, you know, you're addicted or, or something like that. So I, I find, which I, is silly because a lot of the time you're playing games with other people and it's very social or, and it's very engaging and you're solving problems and working together. And to me, it's, it's much more involved and, um, you know, you're using your brain in a way that you're not when you're just kind of zoned out in front of the TV. So yeah. I feel like a, there's a, a lot that's changed by way of, um, of it being more accessible, but I feel like the, the social conversation around it and the perception of it still has a way to go. Oh, it does. And I think it was funny that you say that because I remember like, I didn't even think about it until you raised it, that one of my friends was like, oh, I, sp- I played Spider-Man on the weekend. And I just thought in the back of my mind, oh, that, that must've been a while. Like, but yet I play video games and then I'm like, we'll sit down for five hours playing like Tomb Raider or something. <laughs> and be like, oh, wait, I did the exact same thing. I spent five hours doing something that had a lot of puzzles in it and it's still very much fulfilling and creative. So yeah. it's it's very interesting how, yeah, like how we see in the popular culture and everything. Because I know that, you know, to basically introduce some of like the games that I would like to play. I generally watch YouTubers play it or walk, watch a walkthrough just because then you kind of get a sense of what game you might like and then kind of like that review system. But then a lot of the time, like when you actually do play it, you feel like you've known most of it. That's probably also like another Achilles heel to watching streamers and stuff. How does that work? Like, because you stream, how do you sort of make sure people feel like they should also play the game and not just watch you? <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know that I feel that responsibility at all. I think, I think streaming, when, when Twitch first kind of became, um, you know, known to people, I didn't really understand it. I was like, why would you want to watch someone play a video game as opposed to playing it yourself? <laughs> but <laughs> it did not make sense to me at all. But um, over time I came to realize that it's less about watching someone play a game and more about, I guess, spending time with someone in a way where there's like a live and, and consistent feedback you're, mm-hmm. you're, you're participating in something that's, um, that's social. And, you know, while the, while video games are a really great vehicle for that, at the end of the day, people are there to kind of chat to you and hang out with you and, and watch something entertaining and whether or not they choose to play that game themselves is entirely up to them. Um, sometimes it inspires people to go and play the game. Sometimes people just don't have time for video games, but they still really enjoy them and they enjoy pe- being a part of that community. So that's how they decide to consume them instead. Um, and they prefer the sort of social aspect of playing, of, of seeing that game played out with a bunch of people and being able to comment and interact and, um, even say, you know, maybe, maybe choose that door, Stephanie, or like, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. you know, uh, there's a, there's a back and forth that happens that makes it a completely different experience to playing the game by yourself. Oh, that's good. That's great. Because yeah, like I know so many friends who are trying to break into Twitch which sort of seems like uh, a, a very much they're like, oh, how do I make sure I get enough followers? How do I, you know, all these things where they're sort of like hoping that people will watch them. Um, but yeah, like I, th- I think a lot of the time it's sort of people feel like they don't know what games to start with as well to kind of break into that. Yeah, I feel I feel like it's... um. 
it's it's less about that and more about creating a space that's inviting for people to to spend time and hang out because it feels a little bit like they're there in the room with you. Yeah. And like I, you know, I've never been like particularly amazing at video games. Like I do okay, obviously, but I'm, you know, people don't watch me because I'm like lining up headshots, you know, one after another. They watch me because they want to be able to participate in conversation with me while I'm playing or if I'm playing with my friends on in an online setting, then they want to be able to be a witness to the kind of banter and experiences that we're having fun together yeah and that's something that you're not experiencing when you're by yourself so no No, it's it's very much like um yeah it's it's interesting because you always like feel like there you're a part of it especially when you're either watching a latest uh, twitch stream like it's already being recorded and uploaded or you're watching a live one you can still kind of feel like you're there enjoying it with the people um but it's it's amazing how much like I guess for kids and also people now that online gaming has, you know, evolved that it used to just, you know, be these sort of small um, fantasy games. And now it's almost anything like, you you know, Halo took um, big luxuries in trying to do online gaming as well, um, like with Xbox and everything. So that felt a little bit clunky at first and then good later. Yeah, I feel like it's, I think it's evolved as the infrastructure has evolved, you know, um, people have better access to internet now and, um, you know, systems that can handle a lot more in in terms of processing power and and graphical capability and things like that. So um, I feel like the scope of multiplayer experiences will only continue to evolve and grow as, um, as the hardware does. Yeah. Um, So you... You basically, where did this, so this journey started for you in high school and then you left high school and you went to go and study it in uni, like programming, or how did that, like you eventually get to the ABC? Oh, no. Yeah. So I I had no interest in, well, I had no kind of design to to follow uh, a career in video games at all because it wasn't obvious to me. I kind of got into like theater and acting and things like that because I feel like that was just another vehicle for me to spend time and other worlds and other characters and things Mm. like that so that was what I really loved it was really creative and I enjoyed kind of dressing up and being other people um but then I also really enjoyed writing so I toyed with that for a while but I I think I was really in a theater zone so I started studying um a, a performance degree yeah and um at the same time I was playing a lot of World of Warcraft and um uh, I was working like nights in a call center and I, I had a lot of friends from my work that played a lot of World of Warcraft. So we played that, um, you know, in our spare time. <laughs> and that was around the time that I became aware of Good Game. And I started watching that um, mm. uh, on my way to work or on my way to uni because I used to upload it as like a podcast to iTunes, I think it was. And so I used to just watch it on the way. Um, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that was how I first kind of became aware of it. And um uh, it was around um, my uh, maybe like halfway through my final year of uni that the ABC put out a call for um, television presenters because they were starting the Kids Network. Oh, yes. Yeah. And so I decided to audition for that and they just wanted me to create, well, they wanted everyone to create a audition video that um, just told people a little bit about who they were and and showcased your personality and and the things that you liked so I decided to go to Supernova which is a big pop culture convention um, that happens every year because I thought well I I imagine maybe not too many other people would do that and this really speaks to who I am and the things that I like Um, and 
uh, I decided to record my audition video there and I was um, poorly cosplaying as Starbuck from Battlestar Galactica and um, sort of running around with a camera trying to just film myself doing oh, stuff. Okay. <laughs> and um, I ran into Bajo there. From oh, wow. Game. Yeah, and I just approached him like as a fan and just asked to get a picture with him and stuff and um, he was like, what are you doing here today? And I was like, oh, I'm actually filming a, a, an audition tape for the ABC because um, they've put a call out for presenters. And he was like, you know, we're actually looking for a presenter as well because we're starting a kids show. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> it just seemed like too serendipitous. Yeah. So I um, uh, decided to write out a, a bunch of game reviews that um, uh, I thought would showcase my sort of writing ability and my like critique and review abilities and I was really familiar with the show so I knew the voice that they spoke in and I knew the review format and everything yeah. and I sent them into the show's um producer after um uh, Bajo gave me her contact and um then I went in for a screen test and it all just kind of happened from there it was really amazing that's so cool I mean that's like the best kind of way to find a job really <laughs> Yeah, it was it was totally crazy. Like it's the kind of thing that never usually pays off approaching yeah. someone like that. But it was just it was really sort of serendipitous timing. Yeah, and um, it was super surreal to go from um, watching the show and being so familiar with it and the set and everything to kind of feeling like I'd stepped through the screen to suddenly be sitting there. I mean, how because you were, you know, I did read like that you faced a bit of controversy because you did replace. Um, you know, the previous host and that sort of caused a little bit of controversy because there was all these, why did this person leave? And that was never fully explained. Yeah, it was pretty, yeah, it was pretty awful for a while there. So originally I was supposed to join um, him. His name was Junglist um, and Bajo, uh, um, these are their screen names, obviously. Um, And the three of us were going to host the show because they were sort of starting good game and then good game spawn point. So they wanted to add a third host to the roster to kind of rotate us between the two shows. Yeah. And, um, then I think, I don't know, there had been some stuff going on with him and the ABC that I wasn't aware of behind the scenes. That Mm. was kind of a long running issue and they decided to, um, step him back from an on-camera role and I think they just said that he could sort of stay on the show working as a as a producer and I think he didn't take that very well and opted to leave Uh. Um, and then um uh, was very public about the fact that he had been removed from the like from the hosting position and um that I was being you know coincidentally hired at the same time that they fired him because a girl was being hired so it was just like it was really unfortunate because, I mean, you know, he he didn't really have anything against me specifically, but the language that he used when he left kind of made life very difficult for me because a lot of people then really rallied behind him and were like this, like, girl of the ABC have hired to replace our favourite host, like, has got to go. Yeah. So they were trying to sort of dox me and, you know, they were sort of trying to hack into all of my old like accounts from things that I'd had a million years ago and were photoshopping my face onto porn. And it was just oh like, and this Lord. was before I had even filmed a single episode. Like this was just like, it It was announced that I was going to be joining the show. So um, it went from being this really cool, exciting dream job to being just this absolute nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> overnight. But um, 
you know, uh, thankfully the show's producer um, was a woman and she was like, look, you don't have to prove anything to anyone. Just, um, you know, let your work speak for, speak for you and, and, yeah. um, and they'll come around. And they did. And then I started getting really beautiful letters from little girls who were like, it's so great to see a woman on the show. Like I feel like I could never really say that I was into video games and now I feel like I can and all this kind of stuff. So it ended up just being this really wonderful journey. It just had a bit of a rocky start. Oh, that's <laughs> that's so nice. Like, I mean, it's never nice to kind of get hate mail regardless if you replace anyone. It's just one of those things. But especially like, you know, just that era um, of TV and it is changing. It's one of the things that I keep saying it is changing, but as tech roles, as we spoke earlier, it's just, if you were a girl interested in tech, you were sort of very weirdly shoved to the side or you were very like disregarded as being like, why are you like replacing a guy? Yeah. And I feel like, you know, it, it did feel very like, um, you know, the the ABC were obviously really, really great, but everything else around that felt very tokenistic. Like when there were magazine articles written about me, it was always like, girl gamer, like plays just like the boys and stuff like that. It was Ooh. like, it, it felt really cringy and weird. Um, and, you know, I would go to all of the games events and it would just be like a sea of guys. And when I'd go to E3, like, you know, it was just, you'd get to the front of the line to sort of you know, have a, have get hands on with a game, and they'd be like, "Do you need help?" and oh, stuff Lord. that they that they weren't asking any of the guys. And I was like, "No, I think I'm good." You know, I think I know what I'm talking about. But yes, yeah. like on the upside, the women's <laughs> bathrooms were always empty, and there was never a line, so that was cool. <laughs> All the best upside is right there. Oh my yeah. god! Um, I mean, like. That then goes, when did that sort of start to fade? Because you, you stayed with um, Good Game until about 2015, was it? Um, 2016, okay. end of 2016 is when I stayed too. Um, it, it, def it definitely changed, you know, over time. I think it's still changing. Um, but we've seen some pretty great um, advancements in terms of the industry itself changing. Yeah. Um, I think just with more women getting involved in STEM and um, more interested in coding and game design um, and sort of finding that there are more avenues to get involved in video games, you know, um, than literally just, you know, being a programmer, even that there are so many great female programmers, um, more women are choosing video games as a career option. And um, so more women are getting hired for development teams, which means there are more voices uh, involved in the kinds of games that are getting made, which means yeah. they appeal to a broader range of people and the way women are represented in video games changes a lot. I think the the real shift for me was when Lara Croft got a makeover uh. um, with the Tomb Raider reboot. Like that to me was the biggest like public signal that things were changing yeah. because she's such a, um, you know, an iconic character in video games that that people loved and, you know, it had sort of tra uh, transferred into the film industry as well. And, um, you know, to see her um, get a, a reboot with a, a complete redesign so that her 
proportions were more natural. They hired a female writer to write her story and she was a, a really cool, strong, powerful character that both men and women were like excited to play as. Yeah. That to me was like, see, this is like, this is a sign for the industry that it's not a scary thing to create a normal woman lead protagonist um, that that everyone is excited to play as and it's not going to negatively affect your sales. <laughs> yes. I mean, like, I remember when that, they announced that and I think my, like, childhood draw dropped. Kind of, like, the whole idea of having Lara Croft. Because I remember playing the really old janky, janky <laughs> game and then being like, this is okay. This is very much, like, nice puzzle solving. But I think it was, like, when I started playing the 2013 reboot, it was just so, like, it was written by Terry Pratchett's daughter, who is just, yeah, she's phenomenal. And um, I think it's one of those things where it's like the character felt real. And then when they translated it, uh, they did the movie version, I think, in 2018 with Alicia Vikentes. And that was pretty good. Like, it was almost word for word without the supernatural stuff, which I think was a bit of a dead giveaway to make it less interesting. <laughs> but, but I think it was always like one of those things where she is just a strong um female character she is she's almost like the the ellen ripley um sigourney weaver-esque of you know of video games she was that kind of level of brave where she just go headstrong and i feel like i feel like it was really impactful as well because i feel like rihanna pratchett's writing allowed us to experience Mm. um things in video games that aren't normally highlighted. Like when we watched because it was an origin story for Lara, it was like we got to experience her um, taking someone's life for the first time and or taking a life. I think the first thing she kills is a deer. Yeah. And and that's a really like intense moment for her because she's never killed anything before. You know, she's been like working, you know, as a as an archaeologist, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, sort of following in her father's footsteps, but she's never actually been in a situation that she that we know her to be in when she sort of becomes the tomb raider. So that moment to carry so much weight and the moment when she actually has to kind of um, you know, t- take the life of a human to sort of defend herself in that really intense moment where she's kind of grappling with a man and she's sort of trying to fight him off. It was like, I remember that being so affecting. And I was like, this is, this is from a woman's perspective, like something that's so strong and intense. And and I feel like the payoff was just so rewarding mm. and, and just goes to show what it's like when you have diverse voices involved in telling those kinds of stories and how successful that was. Yeah. I mean, like I played, I played the last one not that long ago, probably like a few months ago. And I just, you know, remember feeling like by the end of the story that she's still kind of this, she's still very similar to how she was in the first game, but it's just, she's gone through so much turmoil and it's sort of like the whole chapter of character developments was done so well in like three video games that I felt like every, every game had added a new layer to her. Like it was just this more interesting, how far is she willing to go? And how much is she willing to sacrifice for, I I think, her version of the greater good or, like, someone's version of the greater good? It was always morally, like, she was a very grey hero as well, which yeah. I think made her really likable for, like, as an audience member. Because a lot of the problems I found with, um, you know, especially female characters was they were always, you know, like, pristine and lovely and, you know, and they were very clean and... They never got messy. And it's nice to see someone who would just like, yeah, get into the nitty gritty of it all and still like show emotion, but then have these sort of flaws and, you know, 
and not be perfect and have arguments with her friends. Yeah, and I think it's also like important to show her um, just as vulnerable as she is strong, you know, because she does. She's put in some really harrowing situations throughout, <laughs> you know, that that whole series, and you really kind of feel for her. But then it makes it so much more. Um, impactful when she finds a way out of it and when she has those moments of triumph rather than just most characters we're used to seeing. And, like, I would single out Nathan Drake, even though that that was one of my favourite game series of all time. Really? I I think it does fall victim a little bit to him just kind of running and gunning and not really thinking about it too much because, (laughs) you know, he's, you know, he's used to it and he's a hero and he's, and he's awesome. But like there are times when I get to the end of a level and I'm like, wow, I just murdered a lot of people. (laughs) And I didn't really think about it that much, but like in the context of the game, it's like, it's, it's, I guess you don't, you're not really, um, yeah. Pushed to think about it, but, um, I like that it's something that was included in her journey. I think I think that you just made me think of Gears of War, and, yes. <laughs> which is completely just run and gun. And yeah, yeah. I just remember the second game where they had the tunnel worm and that was um, going beneath the city. And I just remember the quote, which I, it was like, oh, the cities are being sunk by a giant worm. And it was like this gruff dude saying, <laughs> I was just like, this is the most ham-fisted dialogue ever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's such a ham-fisted game. Like everything yeah. about it was macho-centric. Um, like, you know, it just remind you know, it, all those games like Duke Nukem and all that were just very much hand-fisted um, uh, situations where you just go, oh, God. Like, yeah. please scream. Um, yeah, yeah. I f- see, I feel like you couldn't necessarily get away with that as as much anymore. Like, um, you know, I think I played I played the Outriders demo recently and, you know, that gave, the, gave you the option to choose between a male or female character and women are more persistent in worlds now. Mm. Um, even in a military setting, it's like, you know, you have to have a, a di- more diverse environment. Um, you know, I play a lot of Destiny too, and I really enjoy that because for me, it's a it's an experience from Bungie um, that I feel like I I I'm a lot more involved in because Halo always felt like a dude's game to me. It, yeah, that had you know that celebrated the Master Chief, and it was very much just like you know dude in a suit shooting aliens and the only kind of female presence was Cortana who was like sexy AI girl and even though I know that that's like a that's a very um important game for shooters and how shooters evolved to me it was it was a world that I never really felt invested in whereas now I feel like Destiny 2 has a lot of really strong diverse characters that I feel like excited to be involved with yeah it's it's funny to say that because I think the only thing that greatly came out of um Halo was like red versus blue (laughs) <laughs> which is just like yeah. <laughs> one of the best things to watch when you just kind of want to watch stupid Halo characters shooting at each yeah, other. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's sort of it's sort of like very true. Like a lot of the a lot of the games that I remember growing up with. Like I I think one of the earliest games I remember was like Abe's Odyssey, which was you know like that platformer where you'd be mm. running around collecting you know this alien be collecting things and trying to save his species and i remember my brother and i were addicted to it we used to play it almost every night uh trying to f- beat it uh i don't think we ever did i don't think we actually ever finished it because my our mum didn't like any violent games so like all the all the games that i started like playing when i was a bit older were like bioshock um which i love it's like one of my all-time favorite games but it was mostly because of the world it's it's mostly yeah. because the art design, the world, um, like Infinite is a fantastic look at religion and and prophecies and kind of 
how we see Americana kind of vibe. Um, but yeah, there's just so many things that I love about those kind of games where you see the corruption and the inner turmoil and everything. I think that's the games I really enjoyed because all my friends were very much into the, like the, um, I, I probably came to wow too late. I really wanted to <laughs> yeah. get into wow. I really did. And I got to the bandwagon like probably four years too late. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like you need to be in it with friends to be able to, because that, that was a game as well that like you kind of needed to be leveling with other people mm. to really enjoy it, I think. And um, like I got really into it, but even still, I think my friends sort of leveled past me faster than I was able to keep up with them. And so it, I sort of didn't stick with it long-term and, and didn't get into like raiding and stuff like that. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it was, I was playing WoW and I think the sort of early games that I got into um, once I was like old enough to have my own systems was um, like uh, uh, Elder Scrolls Oblivion. Mm. And I think maybe like the, probably the first Assassin's Creed game I remember getting super into as well. Oh, Assassin's Creed is great. It's just so, yeah. his- oh, give it to me any day. <laughs> Although I don't know how they're still going uh, quite. I don't, I've yet to play any of the later games because I'm always umming and ahhing about a franchise that still keeps yeah. going. They're, they're, they've definitely like oversaturated because the demand for them has been so great. They've yeah. been able to put out a game every single year, but there are gems that still sort of, I would say Assassin's Creed 2 is probably my favorite. Mm. And then I would say um, Black Flag was incredible. And more recently, Valhalla is amazing. Yes, I've been wanting to play Valhalla. That is on my top list at the moment because it just looks phenomenal. Um, and I'm also a huge Viking fan. Like, yeah, love, yeah. <laughs> love Vikings. Give it to me any day. Um, but I mean, like, how are you... Because now we were talking about the whole industry changing and the the sex symbols of women changing from like stuff like you you mentioned when you went to um, network television that they decided to kind of dress you in certain ways and you're you know for most people who don't follow you you're kind of like t shirt and jeans kind of person um, but they were trying to dress you in a bit more of a girly like fashion that you were comfortable with. Yeah, I guess it was just, I felt, I don't know, at the ABC, uh, as soon as I joined the show, I became very aware of the fact that anything I wore, people would comment on, where it was not something that ever happened to Bajo, but like if I wore tights or a skirt versus jeans or whatever, people would comment on it. Mm. And I just really wanted people to focus on what I was saying. Um, so, you know, even once we got rid of the like, um, logo, good game t-shirts, I kind of continued to wear sort of larger oversized t-shirts and stuff so that it wouldn't, you know, hug my body too much so that people wouldn't like comment on anything like that. And, And then it would just, it just wouldn't be an issue. And I guess, um, being aware of the fact that the audience was, you know, 80% male on our adult show, I was just really wanting to make sure that. I wasn't giving anybody any even hint of an idea that I was trying to like, I, I don't know, sexualize myself in any way, even if it meant wearing a, a, a sort of fitted T-shirt. Yeah. And I'd gotten used to that freedom. And because our, at the ABC they were so relaxed with what we wore and, and my producer was a woman and she was very much about just letting me be myself. And I guess like I maybe am a little bit of a tomboy anyway, so that was kind of the stuff that I just felt comfortable in. Mm. Um, and then I was kind of nervous slash excited when, when I got to a, a commercial network and they mentioned that they would have like a wardrobe department to sort of, you know, 
full clothes for us. But um, I, I sort of said to her, look, I, I'm, I'm used to dressing a certain way. So I'm excited about, you know, having someone who knows about fashion, but I, I need to let you know that this is the realm that I'm comfortable in. Mm. And it, she was really nice, but she was getting like a lot of feedback from higher up that I needed to be dressed a certain way. And it wasn't like they were trying to make me wear stuff with massive cleavage or anything. Yeah, It was more just that like I felt that my co-host was allowed to wear certain things because he was a man that I wasn't allowed to wear. Like he was allowed to just wear like a sweatshirt or like a jacket and a T-shirt. And the equivalent for me was not the same. Like it mm. had to be like a girlier version of that. And I was like, but if if Nick is allowed to wear a jumper, like why can't I wear a jumper? Yeah. And they were like, you just need to look like you're more dressed up because it's network television. And I was like, but it's a double standard. Like I don't, how is it, how is he dressed up enough if he wears that, but I'm not? And they were like, that's just the way it is. And I remember just getting into this massive fight with them and then kind of getting pulled into an office and then being like, look, you need to just wear what we tell you or and it was like that was left hanging but the implication is like you do this or else you know? yeah <laughs> wow. like it was it was super late and I just remember getting super frustrated and worked up about it and you know the poor stylist was like it wasn't her fault she was just yeah. you know she's hired to do a certain job you know by the network and she was trying her best to kind of work within what I was comfortable with yeah. the other thing too was that like you know my weight has gone up and down and I think the stress of leaving the ABC I'd gained a lot of weight and like when I gain weight I gain weight everywhere if that makes sense oh, so I yeah. become a, I become a lot curvier <laughs> so I was like doubly as aware of my body and not wanting to wear anything like that clung to my body because I was so worried about like you know everything that that had been mm. part of my experience in television you know over yeah. the years that I'd been doing it. So I just felt really sensitive and frustrated by that whole experience and I kind of walked out of it with a bit of a bad taste in my mouth. Yeah, I th look, I don't blame you. And I think, uh, you know, this is a constant fight I have with just the industry in general is trying to let people be people, um, which is why I started this podcast in the first place, <laughs> was to just kind of give everyone a nice little taste of the real life of uh, the industry. But yeah. um, it yeah, it's for me. You know, I I work with women. Like I, most of my friends are female editors, and I grew up with like some of my closest friends are girls. Like in fact, I probably like the ratio of friends is like eighty percent women, twenty percent guys. Like it's just the ratio is like that. But I think for me, it was always kind of like I never questioned anything. I was very much like. You know, gender stereotypes, labeling, all that. I never was like, oh, okay, you be who you want to be. But when I was hearing it from the industry trying to change everyone, I was like, what the hell? Like, why? Why are we yeah. Why are we going into this debate? And I think it was also because my, like, I grew up with a mother who literally just wore jeans and T-shirts when she was at home. She didn't like dresses. She never liked wearing them. Um, it wasn't her style. And also I had like the complete opposite of parents. I had one, my mum would go to work into an office. My dad would work from home. So majority of the time he would cook and clean and mum would come home from work. So it was very much like I didn't have that stereotypical family growing up. So I think it was always very hard for me to comprehend this kind of world for girls and and just people in general that it's still like so controlling of what how we do it 
Totally. And it's like, I, I mean, you know, there are rare occasions when I do, I, I'm happy to dress more feminine, but I want it to be on my terms in, an, in, a, in a way that I feel comfortable. Yeah. And it's just like I never felt comfortable in that situation. I always felt like I was being like made to look like someone that I wasn't. And, and they were so frustrated because they were like, why is this person making clothes such a big issue and I was like but it is a big issue for me Mm. (laughs) I mean it's because it represents you it represents how you feel about you and 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 I was used to being able to control that how I represented myself and suddenly um you know there I wasn't really so that was that was hard yeah and then you decided like because working in commercial television didn't really last very long um, it was a very short stint, wasn't it, in comparison to working at Good Games? Um, yeah, yeah, which I think we knew was definitely something that was a possibility. But I think I'd been at the ABC for seven years and I'd kind of gotten the feeling that maybe the show wasn't going to go forever. <laughs> and yeah. I really wanted to make sure that if I was going to leave the ABC, because I was my biggest fear was that, that Good Game would get cancelled and it was the only thing I'd ever done and then I wouldn't be able to get work doing anything else because no one had ever been able to see me as anything but, you know, the girl from Good Game. Yeah. So I was like, if I'm going to leave, even though it's a massive risk and even though it's, you know, to a commercial network, I just want to do it on my terms and be able to show people that I've done more than one thing with mm. my career. And um, and so, yeah, it was. A, I think of it as like, a really important um, stepping stone and lesson um, because going through that experience with Nick and also um, uh, Peter, who is uh, the, he was a producer on Good Game. He came across a screenplay and uh, we are now married. Mm. Um, you know, the, the three of us went through that experience together and then we kind of took those lessons into um, creating the show that we now make um, through their company. Yeah. And that was kind of like, integral to that whole process if that makes sense yeah i mean like it really helps because you know um i think one of the things is having that backup almost like you know especially with your husband peter um sort of being through with you for all of stages as well has probably feels like a great backup system um were you two dating when you after you left the abc or during Oh, during yeah, we we we've been together for nearly ten years, I think. So, um, yeah, we would we. I, I was quiet about it for the first sort of few years, but mm. then, um, yeah, we we've been together for a really long time. News sources found out, did they? And then they made it. <laughs> no, I think I just I didn't I just didn't I don't know I just tried to be private about it at first, but then like I think we went on a big trip to Europe, and I was just posting a lot of photos, and people were like, "Who is taking these pictures?" And oh. I was like. Uh, a ghost (laughs) (laughs) you know it just seemed weird at that after a certain point to kind of keep it a secret so yeah yeah um, yeah no that makes sense um but no i mean the reason to go freelancing though like you're now freelancing like essentially um Mm -hmm. which was that the biggest nerve-wracking situation for you as well yeah definitely i think um I think I've just really watched the industry change over the past decade and I've kind of just, we've all kind of had to move with it. You know, I came up um, through broadcast television expecting to stay working in broadcast television. Mm. Um, But that, I think once I became so involved in Good Game, I kind of realized that even though I wanted to be able to try other things, I don't think I ever really wanted to leave video games because it, it, 
it had really become synonymous with me as a person and it was an industry that I really loved working in. It's continually evolving and uh, it's never stagnant. So yeah. I kind of never really wanted to leave video games. I just wanted to have options to do other things as well. And so I saw going freelance as an opportunity to do that. Um, and the first job that I got uh, after screenplay was uh, with National Geographic. I shot a documentary series that had nothing to do with video games for like wow. a year and a half. Yeah, I traveled around Australia and we filmed all these really incredible um, episodes of a TV show called Only in Oz that was all about, you know, celebrating Australia's uniqueness. And then all the while I kept sort of doing promotional work for video games in the background, but I was still kind of, um, you know, doing doing TV. Yeah. And then I kind of realized that if I wanted to stay working in video games, um, the, the whole industry was moving online. It didn't really belong on television anymore with the exception mm. of spawn point because kids still watch free to wear television. Yeah. Um, heaps, but you know, for, for, for adults and, and everything in between people, uh, you know, they're, they're not going to sit down at, at eight 30 really anymore and, and watch a TV show. They're going to find that stuff on YouTube. They're going to, um, find it on streaming platforms. They're going to watch it on Twitch. Like that's just how people are consuming mm. their, their gaming content now. So we kind of had to shift towards creating something that was going to, um, I guess, resonate with our community. And it very much is about uh, creating a community now. When you know, when you talk about red versus blue, like mm. the success of Rooster Teeth has been about creating a massive online network that services a very specific community. And I think we just kind of wanted to do something similar here, and that kind of meant letting go of television and focusing on, um, you know, video games as a as an online yeah entity, <laughs> which you know is is kind of like the way it had to you know evolve it's funny that you say that no one you know no one adult really watches tv i think my parents are the only people i know who still watch like the news come like seven o'clock the tv will go on and they'll watch yeah. like but they'll watch all their other shows on every platform like they'll find sbs on demand they'll find all these other shows that they'll watch through those platforms rather than watching it free to air and yeah, there's there, I just because I work in the industry every day, I don't come home and watch TV. I've got a TV that I play video games and watch YouTube on, but I don't necessarily at all <laughs> watch free to air. Um, so yeah, it's it's very yeah, you're 100 right. It's very it's you sort of weirdly. I it's kids are the only ones that I didn't really even think about would still be watching it. Um, but yeah, I like I yeah I kind of like how did. When you got into, you know, Twitch and everything, was that kind of like, was that earlier before the kind of freelancing world or was that kind of like as a, a, a stepping in point for the freelancing world? I think, um, yeah, I think initially I was like, oh, you know, I, Bajo was kind of making um, a transition to becoming a full-time full streamer and mm. I had sort of toyed with streaming a bit, but I think it became very clear to me um, early on that I will never be a, a full-time Twitch streamer. I think um, I really enjoyed Twitch streaming um, as a way to kind of stay connected to our community. But I think the mm. moment I become reliant on it for um, income, it becomes way too stressful for me. I think <laughs> I have anxiety around the idea that I'm reliant on uh, strangers to kind of mm. willingly, you know, give you money and to feel like you're giving them a, a entertaining thing that's worth paying for. Mm. Um, so I don't, uh, I don't, I stream a lot, but I don't stream, um, like for income 
in a traditional sense. Yeah. I do sponsored streams for other companies and I have a lot of um, partnerships with different brands um, like uh, Lenovo and Logitech and, and Red Bull and stuff like that. So I have that as a part of my streams in, in, in terms of like, um, you know, the brands being present in those streams. But um, none of the um, – if I get anything through for, like, subscriptions or donations and stuff like that, I give that to charity. Because oh, wow. And that completely alleviates, for me, um, the feeling like I'm I'm relying on Twitch for, like, income. Yeah. Because I, I just – I can't <laughs> – I just get so anxious thinking about it and feeling like I have to stream at a certain time or a certain number of times a week. Yeah. Because it's very – like, you have to be a certain kind of person to feel, like, confident enough to stream – you know, f- I think for your bread and butter. And I don't think that personality wise, I am that kind of person. Yeah. And I'm, and I enjoy it when, when that, um, uh, that pressure is, is not there. Yeah. No, that, that, that makes total sense. And I mean, like, yeah, like donating it to charities. And a lot of the time, you know, I watch a lot of streamers who do that, but I could never, I think the idea of just having your entire income based on someone else's enjoyment. <laughs> Yeah, it's really full on. And because you're seeing the numbers there live of people mm. kind of tuning in and then dropping out, it's just like if you see that number dip, you're like, oh, my gosh, am I just being too boring? Do I need to do something else? Or, um, you know, if, if you're not getting as many, like, donations or subscriptions, do you feel like you need to do things differently? And having that as a running dialogue in your head is just such a stressful thing when you're trying to do a job that I just, it's, I can't do it. It's not for me. I would rather do something completely different. Yeah. <laughs> and and that sucks because I do really enjoy streaming when that, when that's not a part of it. So removing that altogether um, is, is just, is really great. And then I have this nice thing where people can um, vote on whatever charity they want the money to go oh, to. Oh, that's great. We just post the receipts in the, in the discord community. So oh, it's, that's... it's been, a, it's been a good solution for me. Yeah. I mean, like you also talk about sponsorship and everything. How does force, like people who talk about sponsorship sponsorship is one of those things that goes completely over my head always has don't know why um but it's always one of those things that feels like a bit of like how do you get sponsorship or how did it happen or you know like all this kind of weird misnomer how did like was it just through like people reaching out to you like the companies going hey yeah yeah I think um I was in a fortunate position in that I already had a profile from the ABC so once I left the ABC and was able to start working commercially that stuff sort of happened um, slowly and, and naturally. I also um, have a, uh, and with a management um, agency, so um, they help with all of that contract negotiation mm. stuff as well. And I think it just becomes, um, it just becomes a thing where for me, I see it as a vehicle to, I can kind of, uh, I can rely on doing creative stuff for sponsors for income so that I can um, work on things like back pocket um, and create the show that we really love to make and not have to worry about that, um, you know, paying my mortgage because um, at the moment, you know, I make uh, my um, husband's company, they create back pocket through like Patreon, but uh, currently I don't see any money from that. It's still very much a kind of startup that's just trying to, you know, cover its own costs and stuff. Yeah. So um, for me to get income via sponsorships and to do um, work with brands and stuff like that, then I can just worry about that for my income. And then creatively I can focus on making this cool thing for our community that um, is really creatively fulfilling yeah. and makes me feel like we're doing something really cool and, and meaningful within the gaming community. And, and it's entirely ours and no one can cancel it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's secure. It's tightly secure and I can keep it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, also with back pocket, because 
how long has that been running now? Like it was, it was a back pocket was a COVID baby. (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, original pocket was a a web version of good game back in, in, back when, when that was still on air. Mm. Um, it, it started off being like a cut down version of good game and then it kind of became its own thing. And it was a YouTube show that, um, that Peter produced and made with Nick and a couple of other people. And it was doing really well and it kind of fostered its own community. that was kind of separate from the main show. Mm. And, um, that was really the direction that we were hoping that, um, the ABC was was worthwhile taking good game. But I think when budgets became an issue, that was actually the first thing to get cancelled, which wow. was really upsetting. And then when Nick and I decided to leave um, and a big part of us sort of creating something for, for Channel 7 was us wanting to create a, a cool web component, um, then, yeah, after that, then the ABC cancelled good game altogether, which was a, an unfortunate thing to happen. Yeah. Yeah, and so um, I think... Uh, um, once we sort of left Channel 7, there was always this thing kind of hanging there that was like this community that had followed us from Good Game and then to Pocket and then to Screenplay um, were just kind of, they were still there in their own kind of online communities and stuff and Facebook pages and they were yeah. all still friends through the show. And I think there was always this idea um, in the back of Nick's mind that they would want to do something like that again. And um, Gus, who was also on Good Game, when they formed a company to start doing stuff, he was really keen to start doing it. And, um, you know, Peter was, was the one who sort of produced that show back in the day. So he would definitely be the person to, to make it happen. And, and I think once the company had been up and running for a year and they'd just been doing commercial jobs, when COVID hit, they were like, maybe we have a little bit of breathing room now to actually work on this and see if this is a thing that can actually happen. And, um, once, uh, once it was launched, um, I don't think any of us expected it to be, uh, as successful as it was in in the first sort of few months, we had all these Patreon, um, you know, tiers and goals that we wanted to reach, and then we suddenly sold out of everything and had to then go playing catch up over the next six months to make sure everyone we could deliver everything that everyone had wow. <laughs> subscribed to with their tiers and stuff. So we're only just now actually getting to the point where we're able to um, sort of lock off everything that we've owed everyone from the that first. Um, influx of, of patrons. So it's been really cool. That's awesome. Like that that must be the most stress-inducing thing though. <laughs> yeah, but I think because because the way everything works now as opposed to, you know, television, which was very much like a, um, you know, a very big wall between you and the audience, everything is an open dialogue with our community now. So it's just we're constantly talking to them and updating them and getting feedback from them. And, mm. um, you know, it, it's, it's something that we're able to have as an ongoing dialogue with the community. So it's stressful, but at the same time, people are totally understanding because they're just a part of it as well. Yeah. Oh, that's... And they're happy and they're happy to be included in that way. <laughs> that's awesome. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, Patreon's kind of like taken off a lot of people's businesses now, which is, I think, awesome. I know so many people who use, you know, Patreon. Uh, yeah, and it's it's just different when you think about commercial television being something that um, you know, applies, uh, maybe appeals a little bit to a very large group of people. What we do is make something that appeals a lot to a very small group of people, but um, they're willing to to pay for that very curated content. So, yeah. Um, it's just a different different way of approaching things. Oh, that's, that's awesome. I mean, like, it's, it's interesting as well, like you say that everything kind of happened out of a COVID baby. I feel like that's yeah. everyone's kind of like thing that something's happened out of COVID, it's been the best thing. It's like, it's been the best and worst thing 
that's happened to like <laughs> to a lot of people. Yeah. Um, I mean, what was it like with COVID starting? Did you have a freak out of, you know, or was it quite easy for you to kind of readjust your thought process of, you know, um, you know, company, what, like income and stuff? Was it just kind of easy to put your head around it or? Um, I think just like everyone, there was a lot of uncertainty at first. Um, I'd say a large portion of my work was event-based. So um, Mm -hmm. working at events like E3 or um, uh, the Melbourne Esports Open, PAX and stuff like that. So, uh, and also a lot of conferences. I do a lot of um, MC work and and speaking work at conferences and stuff. Um, So all of that suddenly went away. But it just meant that um, the sort of online promotional work that I was doing kind of increased a lot because, you know, if publishers weren't able to show their games off heaps at, at E3 or, or at PAX and, and events and stuff, they then just decided to transition that work online. So it meant that I was streaming a lot more and I was making a lot more sort of online content um, and it, my, my year was a lot more advertising focused. Mm. Um, but that's why I think Back Pocket became a real priority because to kind of offset a lot of the advertising I was doing, mm. you know, we really needed to make something that was really creative, creatively fulfilling and, um, you know, uh, something that was just purely content driven as opposed to, um, you know, promotional. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that makes, that, that makes a lot of sense. Like I'd be, I'd be personally quite stressed like <laughs> with, with all of that, but, you know, that at least it worked and you didn't have to like stress too much. Totally. And I think like, you know, there were so many industries that were really, really suffering. So I felt really, you know, if anything, I just felt really fortunate that I still had work and, um, you know, video games are something that were, that, that was kind of, if anything, doing better out of COVID. So there was (laughs) maybe, you know, more opportunity to, to work in that space than, than before. So yeah. I think, you know, we did well. And then in the times when I was sort of, I had downtime, I just tried to sort of focus on writing and other creative stuff Yeah, and feel like I was being productive in my own way. <laughs> did, because didn't you write a, a book series? Yeah. Yeah. Bajo and I wrote a series of books for like eight to 12 year olds called Pixel Raiders for Scholastic Australia. So um, my next project would be to, to write a fantasy novel, like the fantasy novels that I have always loved since I was a teenager. Um, I would love to, to write one for adults, but it's, a, it's, if you've ever read Medi- Medi- like epic fantasy, it's a, it's a pretty hefty word count. Oh so yeah. You're talking a, like, you're talking like Lord of the Rings capacity or like, you know, like, like, like I would say minimum, like 150,000 <laughs> words probably. So it's, it's like, it's, I've cert- I've made a decent start, but I think it'll be years before it's finished while I'm trying to do my regular job. At the yeah. I, I know somebody who's also like, I, I know about three other people who are trying to write deep fantasy yeah. and it is, t- <laughs> it's taken them five <laughs> years already. And it's not even like they've got the whole series planned. Yeah, it's just right. I did a I <laughs> yeah. did a really great writing course this year with the uh, Australian Writers Centre, and everyone else was writing like modern um, Australian fiction and mm. stuff like that, which is like you know around the sixty thousand word mark. And mm. I would just be like, p- people would be like, "What's your book about?" And I'm like, "Well." <laughs> It's set in the world of Etheran. Oh, Lord. Here is the system of magic. And they'll be like, okay. <laughs> and by now. There is, uh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, never mind. <laughs> I, I think it's like um, whenever I walk into the fantasy section of a bookshop, you have a look at the shelves and you always go, which one looks like a $2 cover, like book yeah. cover. And you always try and look for the ones that like, you know, have these weird, unique leather bound 
or like everything that are you one of those people who like has a particular book style that you want to find your book on a shelf and look like kind of I used to be really drawn to the art but the trends have moved away from art on book covers now and they, mm. they tend to be really minimalist with some kind of symbol um on them and and so it can be harder so I tend to try and just like I guess I'll draw I'm drawn to things that look um I guess maybe like a bit mysterious and then I usually try and sort of read through the first few pages but I also now just get so many great recommendations from people because I have such a great resource and in having online communities to talk to that I'm I, I usually have so many great recommendations that I'm never short of things to read oh that's I'm, that's so good I'm like got a bookshelf just behind me and I'm look at it and I'm like <laughs> there's so many books that I still got to get through yeah um, yeah <laughs> like the list of English literature that I've I've still got to knuckle my way through I've just got, I got really into audiobooks as well. Like I used to be a bit of a, like a, a, a book snob and I was like, it's not really reading, is it? If you're listening to the book. But I remember it was actually Bajo who started listening to audiobooks when we were back at Good Game. And I was always someone who considered myself like a really serious reader, but like as you get older and life gets in the way and you, you know, things take up a lot of your time. Then I just started reading less and less. And suddenly he was just churning through books because he was listening to them on his commute or like mm. when he was just, you know, doing the dishes and stuff like that. And, um, he was just burning through books at a rate that I just couldn't believe. So I was like, maybe I should give this a go. And I'm such a convert. Like I love audiobooks now. And because I live in the blue mountains, it's like a good hour and a half drive from Sydney. Mm. I listen to so many audiobooks in the way um, into the city or if I'm out walking my dog and stuff like that, I'll listen to audiobooks. And now I just, I get through so many that way. Oh, <laughs> yeah. The, like th that would be the dream for me. I love the, blue, <laughs> I love the blue mountains, but listening to audiobooks in the blue mountains would be just the ultimate dream to just yeah, like relax. <laughs> it's pretty special. I just, I really recommend it for anyone. Cause the people are like, oh, I just don't think I could get into audiobooks. I'm like, just give it a go. And sometimes it's like, there are some books, like I would like my favorite book of all time is the name of the wind, Patrick Rothfuss. Uh -huh. And and it's actually uh, an Australian author who has, he has a bit of an English accent, but, mm. um, and sorry, an Australian author, um, uh, narrator, his name is Rupert Degas, mm. who does the most incredible rendition of that story with all of these different character voices. And he has such a beautiful way of speaking that I like, it's one of the few things that I would absolutely recommend the audiobook over just reading the book the normal way, because it it's such a completely original experience yeah. having the like consuming the story that way. So quite often the narrator can, I mean, a bad narrator can also ruin it, but like <laughs> having a, it narrated well can, can create a, a really entirely new experience of, of, um, of having that story. Does yeah, that make you like want to become a like audiobook narrator? <laughs> <laughs> I would love to, yeah, but I think it's a really hard job. It's a lot of talking for a really long time. I don't know that it pays that well, but um, but yeah, I mean, I would love to just because I love reading so much, and I would love to, I would love to tell one of those stories. Because because I feel like this is your this is has to be your goal now. Finish your book, <laughs> narrate your book, and be like everything is uh, done by you. I don't think I'd want to narrate my own book. I think I I think I have too many. Um, um, I admire too many other narrators that I'd want to have someone else do it. I think to do, to do my story justice. I don't think I could do it myself. Would you ever like, are you one of those people though? Like, because you did a theater degree, like well, an acting degree um, and arts, like, would you be very interested in like, if they turned your um, book into a movie or anything, would you want to be in it? 
Would you like to have a cameo in your own story? <laughs> I would definitely want to have a cameo. Again, I think if it was like, if it got made, in, if, it, if I wrote a book that was successful, that got made into a movie, I just want to have like an amazing cast. But I'd definitely be like a Peter Jackson, like, yeah. you know, crazy, bedraggled, wet gatekeeper or something. Like, yeah. <laughs> for a second. <laughs> this comes to my next question as well, before we get on to the topic of like um, quickly on social media and mental health. Like if you were to do, like with games and movies what's your thoughts on translations do you think they should be separate or like you know adaptations of video games should work in films what's your thought totally I'm I'm like like any fan I just I love to the opportunity to to consume as much of the thing that I love as possible Mm. um and I think that there's always a way for it to be done well it's just that rarely do things line up to 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 sort of set that in motion but yeah i mean i th- i think i think you know it, even really really cinematic games like the last of us that's uh, you know i think the best way to to consume that story is through the video game because mm. you're invested via the interactivity of it you know it makes it more powerful um, I think it's great that they're making a TV series of it because to know that it was based on a video game, I think would just have people who don't play games maybe having questions about what the game is like. And, you know, I think it only serves to push video games forward in, in terms of making it a more mature and respected medium if, if mm. it's if it's crossing um if it's crossing like genres like that so yeah uh, yeah I, th- I think it's always great I think it's just you just hope that it's done well and you hope that it's given the time and budget that it deserves it's not like Mario Bros where it's 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 really a big flop yeah I think that was that I mean that was very that was a very much a product of its time I think <laughs> It's, I feel like it wasn't just a product of its time. I don't think it was just anyone thought about the process of what went into it. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> um, it was Mario Mar- um, Mario, and Luigi Mario, and that's just a very confusing name convention right there. Um, that's true. And they weren't even, they didn't even look related. So it was like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that movie giving me nightmares as a kid. It was a bit creepy. It was. It was very creepy. It was like a big. No, no, as I was a kid, I was not a fan of it. Um, but, I mean, with with social media and everything, like, it's funny because you talk about, like, how, you know, with Back Pocket and everything that it's sort of like social media presence. Your Instagram is is kind of like a sometimes promotional, sometimes just personal, like, all a little bit um, eclectic to you. Would you describe it as like sometimes you're very like, oh, this is what I'm feeling or this is what I'm doing or sometimes I look bored or. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's, I mean, yeah, I mean, like uh, it's, it's a a fact of life that, um, you know, anyone, anyone working with a, with a public profile, Mm. you know, tends to have to involve social media in work stuff. But I think it's really important to like, I mean, no one wants to follow someone just post ads all the time. Mm. Um, so I feel like it's, for me, Instagram like loses its appeal if I'm not able to still use it as a, um, a vehicle to just share aspects of my life. Mm. Um, you know, people understand that, that, um, sometimes promotional work is a part of that, but I still have complete control over everything that I do on there. And I still like to make sure that I'm sharing things that make me happy and reflect who I am as a person. And I think it's also important to like, I don't know. I never want to have uh, one of those accounts that just looks like it's everything's been professionally photo- like photographed all the time. Mm. Like it's just I they're just 
there's going to be pictures of my cats taken on my phone. There's, you know, there's going to be pictures of my breakfast sometimes or me with my friends or, you know, when I'm out for a walk and I see something beautiful, I'll post a picture of that. And I feel like that way it's still true to who I am. And, yeah. and you know, the fact that there's going to be work stuff on there as well is also a part of my life. But um, I feel like at least it's it's well-rounded and an honest representation of myself. Which I think, I think is very like... Um... Because one people like, I think whenever someone has a bit of a celebrity status, they always kind of think, are they real people? And it's sort of nice to, you know, have that making sure that you do feel like you're like everyone else. Totally. And I've definitely fallen victim to that myself. Like over the years, I've, I, I've, I've had to really have a sort of strong look at how I use social media. I think I got, I went through a phase where I just started following a lot of like, um, fitness influences and stuff because I thought that would be motivating and a lot of travel influencers who post a lot of really incredible photos that are just like out of a magazine that make me feel like the way I'm living my life is somehow Mm. um, inadequate because it doesn't look like that. And I think a couple of years ago I just went, I decided to just unfollow everyone initially and I just started from scratch and every time I I decided like even all my friends and family and everything I just started completely wow okay and I was like I just first of all I just need to break this cycle of constant scrolling and feeling Mm. like I need to see everything um and then I just needed to I started to think about like what do I want to see when I look on here like what what doesn't raise my like blood pressure (laughs) when I look at this you know or give me anxiety and I realized that I wanted it to be a space where I so I follow a lot of farms now is the answer oh that's so I follow a lot of like baby sheep and like really nice landscapes and stuff and then I sort of eventually followed my my very close friends and family but I don't follow like every single person in my industry and stuff like that yeah yeah, people that I feel like I might compare myself to or feel like I'm not doing enough or I'm not doing things in the same way I just now I find I spend less time on there because I follow far fewer people so Mm. I'm just every time I open it it's like oh there's the same mountain that I saw two hours ago because I don't nothing has been added to it. And I feel like, honestly, it was one of the best things I could have done for my mental health. (laughs) Yeah. And and I just, I hope that I'm never, um, I hope that I'm never that person for someone else that makes them feel inadequate or bad about themselves. So I feel like it's important to post pictures of yourself without makeup on sometimes and like, you know, just normal life stuff that just, you know, reminds people that, that you are just a person. I think, I think that's very important as well, because there's something that I know a lot of people forget and also especially in this particular industry once you kind of have a reputation you kind of perceived as you know it's hard to break it um it's like the prime example would be if you've had a bad day and you've been really grumpy or like crabby and you've come to work really crabby and then suddenly everyone will be like oh that person's really terrible to work with like because of one scenario yeah and it's very like social media like I never write anything personal on Facebook I will post Mm. like photos of myself at events and stuff I have like multiple different Facebooks which I post photography on and I post like personal stuff on um, but also like my podcasting one so it really does depend like I don't want anyone to have like this sort of you know always checking with people to see if they're okay with stuff and all this stuff but it's very quickly you I know friends who have had like been sort of written off by unfair circumstances or just circumstances when they've had a bad day. Yeah. And I feel, and it's so hard as well because, 
it's very difficult, I think, to portray anything truly genuine um, on social media. I think I think I spend probably most of my time on Twitter because it's just people's thoughts, you know, and it feels like the most truest representation of people. Whereas I think, you know, any Facebook, I, I deactivated my personal one because I felt like it was just Facebook has morphed into something that I just can't handle. Anymore. Oh, yeah. I, I still have my work page that I use, but like um, I got rid of that. And then and and I guess I don't know, like I even saw I remember in the news a little while ago, it was in an, in the news that um, American celebrity Chrissy Teigen uh, had a had a miscarriage and she posted this black and white photo that was a really heartbreaking photo of her sort of sitting on a hospital bed mm. that her husband had taken of her. Um, you know, she was just obviously upset in the aftermath of what had happened. Mm. And everyone just like dragged her for posting this black and white photo, you know, that they felt was really contrived talking about a miscarriage. And she was just like, I mean, I feel like people are constantly saying that you never show, you know, you only kind of post when you're having good days and really nice pictures of yourself. And it's, it's not a genuine representation of what life is. Mm. And here's her sharing, you know, in, in the most tasteful way that she could a really heartbreaking, horrible moment that a lot of people go through and would be able to relate to. And then all anyone could say was how fake it was and how contrived. And I just was like, you really can't win. No. (laughs) So I feel like it's, it's, it's all we can do is our best (laughs) and try not to take it personally when people react badly. (laughs) It's, it's so true. And I mean, like it, it, it kind of makes me think that I think it's such a, it's such a thing for women again, where it's like social media, no matter what they do there's some sort of representation of other women or other guys commenting on the way they are like um yeah i think one of the one of the best things was one of my guests yesterday said she doesn't post anything on her story until a few days later because she doesn't want anyone knowing where she is yeah and i think it was like i didn't even think about that and i was like oh that's actually really smart um yeah i i think i try to do a little bit of that but also just to so that like I like taking photos in the moment, but if mm. you're taking photos and then instantly uploading them, it's kind of pulling you out of where you are and what you're doing. So if I'm having a really nice day out or I'm at, at somewhere, you know, that I'm enjoying myself, I feel like I try, I take photos as I love taking pictures of things, but I don't sort of mess around with uploading them until the end of the day. Because yeah. then it's like, you're there in your presence still and you're enjoying it and you're not like worrying about Instagram or anything like that and you can kind of dedicate some time to doing that at the end of the day yeah and I feel like that's really good practice just from a like you know um being present exercise (laughs) I I think like you you've you very much sound like someone who's always trying to be like less you know in front of the screen and more just like aware of what's around you and present within the moment so it doesn't yeah like, well, I feel I feel like I've just been victim to it in a really bad way, and I think a big part of why we moved up here to the mountains was just that you know we work so much in tech and screens and stuff like that. I felt like we needed to offset it with like lots of trees. Oh yeah, and and the mountains <laughs> is like the I find I'm my most creative, like uh, away from the city, which is kind of funny because I live right next to the city because of work. But if I could live anywhere, it would be like rural area, like out of out of the main city area. Yeah. And someone, you know, nice and peaceful and quiet with a coffee shop down the road. That yeah. all ba- I, all I baby need. sheep, baby sheep is the goal for me. <laughs> baby sheep. Do you want to own? And, and 
And now my Instagram reminds me every day. <laughs> so is so is the plan to own baby sheep or just look at baby sheep? No, I would love to have some sheep. <laughs> I would love to have some goats and a few chickens. That would be like my next sort of plan. Five-year plan would be to sort of move somewhere um, up here that has a little bit of land. Um, hmm. Not too far. Like I still, you know, I'm keen to keep working and, and doing stuff. I just... I feel like there's a way that we can make it work. <laughs> That's so lovely. I want to see. I want to see all these photos with just you and sheep. Now, yeah. like <laughs> the lots of sheep. Um, I mean, you talk also a little bit about mental health and everything. Was mental health something you struggled with in school? Was that something? Yeah, for sure. I think I just always had a bit of an identity crisis, and I think you know, body image stuff is, is something that a lot of people deal with. And mm. I think it's really great that people are talking about it more. And, you know, I, I think for a long time, uh, again, it felt like being open about that stuff felt like it was just, you're trying to, you know, draw attention to yourself mm. or, um, but I think that, um, in the right way, it's really important to have that conversation. And, and I think it's, it's, harder than ever now that that so much of our lives exists online and and now we have this um constant comparison to other people via the way that they represent themselves digitally that hmm. so many people like I think I saw a really horrible graph um about the sort of um the rise of teen suicide and how drastically that has increased since 2009 when social media really took off like it is actually it's almost a a, a it's almost a, a, a vertical line, mm. you know, seeing how, how much it's gone up and, and, you know, we have to find a way to sort of coexist with social media and not have it make people want to kill themselves. Yeah. So I, I, I just feel like, I don't know, we, we just sort of try and keep talking about it as much as possible and yeah. find ways to, I think everything happens as well in sort of reactionary swings. So while there's been this massive push towards living your best life through Instagram, I think there'll be a reactionary me measure of trying to, you know, inject some reality into everything because, you know, we have to. Yeah. I 100% I think that because, like, I'm a big advocate for, like, um, people going to see therapists and um, and also just, like, I guess talking about anxiety or depression or medication, um, like whatever helps you, kind of, but openly talking about it, yeah, and not letting not letting it simmer, yeah, because um, yeah, like I I suffered from body dysmorphia as well, so it's one of those things that I remember like until like one of my best friends even noticed. I was about eight, uh, about twenty two when like she asked me about it, but I was about eighteen when it started really kind of being a very big thing and I remember her just coming over to me and being like you look like you're really like underweight and I was like no I'm fine and she was like are you though yeah. like you don't seem it like you I haven't seen you really eat much and like you seem really stressed and your anxiety seems really bad and it was just all these things that I had it not been for her it really wouldn't it would have just simmered like it was just really good that she noticed but I remember at the time like guys w didn't really talk about mental health. Yeah. It was like this guard up. We, you know, we had to be a certain way. We had to be headstrong. And um, it was sort of like you had to protect girls. You had to kind of like do that whole protecting thing, mm -hmm. which sort of seems like so like in the past now. But yeah. I still hear those comments today of being like um, people saying derogatory terms 
when you're saying like, oh, I care for this person. They're like, why? You know, yeah. they should be able to suck it up. And it's like, should they though? Like, I feel like I already notice a big difference just in like the male friends that I have in Discord mm. and stuff like that when we're playing games, the way they talk about. And Peter has said this too. Like he's like, he kind of grew up in the thing that, you know, guys kind of riff on each other and have banter and sort of playfully put each other down mm. as, a, as part of a sort of societal thing that, um, has been ingrained into into men and boys for so long. But, like, he was like, I find it interesting now that the people that we play with and stuff um, through our community, like, they're all much nicer to each other. And, mm. like, while there's still a bit of riffing and stuff like that, when someone's having a bad day, like, they're really open about it. And I feel like the, those little shifts are already happening, and that's super nice. Yeah, I, th- I think it was very true because, like, I occasionally will play Among Us with work friends and well, like the moment you introduce people who aren't normally to that group, who and you know they've played among us with like randoms online, you go come and join people that you might get along with. They're like first thing is one of my really good friends. He was like, oh man, I was so anxious about meeting <laughs> new people. And I was like, but weren't they all nice? And he was like, yeah, I was just not prepared. <laughs> my anxiety yeah. was through the roof, like being stressed. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, we just murder each other and it's fine. Like just calm down. <laughs> Um, so that's like my solution to a lot of like de-stressing is playing, yeah, like that co-op situation as well, I think really does like, you know, you say with the community really does help a lot of people meet new people as well. Yeah, Um, absolutely. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Um, I think that's all really. I have, I've absolutely loved, uh, chatting to you. It's been an absolute (laughs) blast. Thank you so much for, um chatting with me oh my pleasure thank you so much for having me on your show it's been wonderful to talk to you as well no thank you um and this is the if you want to go and check her out um uh, check steph out on facebook instagram twitch what's your twitch handle hex steph it's hex steph on everything except facebook i think facebook it's s bendixon but ah. every, every every social media platform i'm just hex steph which um you know it's fantastic and everyone will know you as hex so um <laughs> but no um please go and check it out um you can tune into more uh, things we do episodes and i will speak to you all later Bye bye